Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Bradley Hart about his excellent new book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States, published in 2018. Dr. Hart, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad glad to be here. It's a a pleasure to have you. Um, Dr. Hart, we traditionally like to begin these interviews by having you, the author, tell us something about yourself. Well, I was born and raised primarily in California. I grew up in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I did my undergraduate work at California State University, Fresno, where I'm actually currently an assistant professor as well. So I'm sort of a, uh, a full circle Fresno State bulldog in that sense. I then went from Fresno State to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where I did an MLIT in modern history. And yes, played some golf while I was there, one of the best golf courses in the world. And went from there to the University of Cambridge, where I did my PhD at Churchill College under the supervision of Richard J. Evans. Um, and how did you get interested in history? I've always been interested in history. Uh, interestingly, my current post at Fresno State is in the journalism department, which is obviously a very adjacent field. So I've done professional work as a journalist when I was sort of an undergrad and then a little bit after grad school. Um, but I've always been interested in history and always knew that I wanted to write history to that extent. So working on this project and my other books that I've done has really been a, a dream come true in that way. Um, so let's let's turn to the book. How did you how did you come to this topic? How did you how did you decide to write about Hitler's friends in America? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. So I did my PhD dissertation on the 20th century eugenics movement. And part of that project was looking at how uh, scientists and policymakers in the Third Reich actually based a lot of their policies and, in fact, their research on work that had been done previously in the United States and Great Britain. So I've always sort of been an international historian in that way and looked at these transnational connections, ties, and influences. Um, my second book, or my first book, I should say, after my PhD dissertation, which I have not yet published, um, was actually a biography of a British eugenicist who became a Nazi sympathizer through his interest in anthropology and biology. So he actually um, drove his political views based on sort of biological determinism. And as part of researching that project, primarily in the UK, I came across correspondence in his archive with figures in the United States. Which sort of led me to the question of what was really going on here. You know, what what were the transnational ties and what were the transnational influences that were driving the far right, for lack of a better term, in this period? And so that got me interested after I published that book uh, in 2015, I think it was, uh, to to look further into these ties and started digging around the archives. And really, when I knew I had a good project was when I uncovered the papers of John C. Metcalf, who is a figure who appears very prominently in at least the first chapters of my current book who was a journalist and sort of FBI informant who infiltrated the German-American boot, which is one of the primary pro-Nazi groups in that period. And I actually discovered his journals uh, from this infiltration work that he had done at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. So that was a really important uh, sign that I was onto something here. And, and from there, I really just began uncovering this rich archival material that shows up in the book and was just absolutely amazed by what I was finding. Hmm. So you mentioned the, the, the German-American boot in your in your 
in your answer. Um, you talk more about this organization. Um, it's it, it's the, it features prominently in the book. It's the first chapter, um, and it, it's the largest organization um, that you talk about. Um, I'll start there, and then I'll ask you some follow-ups. Yeah, I mean, the German American Bund is a large organization. It's, it's actually not the largest in the book. The America First Committee is, is much larger. It's about four or five times as large, actually. But in terms of the overtly pro-Nazi groups, it is the largest one. It has more than 100,000 members, somewhere we think between 100,000 and 200,000, though those numbers are based upon an incomplete archival record because of the way the government shuts it down in the late 1930s. But we think it was a fairly large organization, pretty much nationwide, although it wasn't particularly popular in the South. Um, and it was a group that sort of began as a general pro-German heritage organization. So it grew out of efforts by the German government to stay connected with effectively the expatriate community that had expanded rapidly after World War One. And so they created a series of groups that were effectively designed to uh, keep German Americans in touch with the homeland, sort of influence their politics later on in favorable ways towards the German government, whether that was the Weimar Republic or the Third Reich later on. Um, but in, in the late 1930s, it becomes a very clearly pro-Hitler, pro-Nazi organization. They actually combine the symbols of Americanism, the American flag, George Washington, uh, the Fourth of July, with the Third Reich. And so they begin really developing a, a hybrid ideology that I talk about in the book, where they're trying to convince Americans of both German extraction and otherwise that not only is Germany not the enemy, but but Nazism might be compatible with Americanism in some way, something to offer in that sense. So to make a long story short that I talk about in the book, this group obtains more than 100,000 members, as I said, uh, but then is rapidly shut down by the U.S. government when it's discovered that its leader, Fritz Kuhn, is actually skimming money off the, off the top. So it's an intrinsically corrupt organization, and that leads to its downfall. Yes, I definitely wanted to ask you about uh, Fritz Kuhn, because in, in the book you, 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 you draw a great portrait of him as sort of this outlandish character. Um, so I wonder if you can tell the listeners a little bit about him, um, his lifestyle, and, well, you, you already mentioned his, his arrest. Um, yeah, and it's, and it's all tied together, absolutely. He is this very outlandish figure. Um, he's, he's a German immigrant himself. He claims to have been, although we don't really know the truth of this, claims to have been an early Nazi party member and possibly even been present for the Beer Hall Putsch that lands Hitler in, in jail for a while. Um, but yeah, he comes to the United States, works for the Ford Motor Company in Detroit, gets fired from that job because he's practicing his political speeches while on the clock, supposedly, and they don't look kindly on that. But then becomes the leader of the German-American boon on the national level, partially because he's seen as a very good speaker. He has actually won the Iron Cross in World War One, so he has this military legitimacy, and he incorporates that in his in his standard boon uniform, so he's always wearing this Iron Cross around. Um but also, um, it's seen as an effective speaker, so he emulates his, his speaking style on Hitler's, and so he sort of uses these erratic arm gestures, which make him somewhat effective, but also somewhat comedic. When people are saying that Hitler's speaking style is, is somewhat farcical in that in the sort of similar way, so it's a dangerous strategy for him. But he also cuts this very outsized figure in the American press. So by 1937-38, Kuhn has become a national figure not only because of his political involvement, but because he's seen as this almost mysterious figure on the New York social scene. He uh, is married at the time, but is constantly seen with a succession of sort of beautiful women who it's implied are his mistresses, including a former winner of, of the Miss America pageant. Um, he's seen in nightclubs listening to, to trendy jazz music, despite his highly racist uh, personal views. And so you sort of imagine the figure that this guy was cutting. This is someone that may not have been quite a household name in this period, but 
certainly would have been someone that people, especially in the New York area, would have been very aware of. And uh, he did travel to Germany and meet Adolf Hitler sort of in a, um, I guess, a receiving line. Um, yeah, he meets, he meets Adolf Hitler as part of the uh, events and celebrations involving 1936 Berlin Olympic mm-hmm. Games. So as I point out in the book, this is a purely propaganda exercise. Kuhn does this because he wants to present himself as a legitimate leader of the Nazi movement in the United States. And what better way to do that than to be seen shaking hands with Hitler? So the Bund sends this delegation and they meet with Hitler. And it's sort of unclear what this really represents. I mean, there's a lot of accounts, especially in this period, of, of people meeting Hitler the 1936 Berlin Olympics, of course, as many of the listeners will know, is this huge stage-managed event. Charles Lindbergh is actually there as well, as I talk about in the book. But this is the Third Reich on, on putting on its best face. And so Hitler's meeting a lot of people. And he meets Kuhn and these other Bund leaders, sort of shakes hands with them. There's sort of grainy photos taken. I mean, there's really, if you look at photos of this, there's like one photo that's used in every book, which tells you that this is, this is not a very, very well-photographed event by the photographers present. Um but Kuhn takes this one photo, runs it on the front page of the German-American Boone's newspaper, and claims that he's now the legitimate head of the Nazi movement in the United States. Yeah, one of the things I want to ask you about um, in a little bit is that one of the problems with all these these groups that you talk about, they, 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 they never can coalesce around one leader. Um, and I think the next group, um, the Silver Legion, with, with their leader, who's even a little bit more outlandish, um, then Fritz Kuhn is um, a good reason why they were never able to sort of all join together. Um, so can you talk about the Civil Legion, what it is, um, how it got started, and then and then we'll go from there? Absolutely. The Silver Legion, as you say, is definitely one of the more outlandish groups, if not actually the most outlandish mm-hmm. and just sort of bizarre in the entire book. But it's founded in 1933 by a gentleman named, well, a gentleman might be a little uh, generous, actually, but a man named William Dudley Pelley, who is a anti-Semitic, anti-communist writer who's actually pursued a career in Hollywood up until the mid-1920s. He's been a fairly successful screenwriter, amassed a little bit of a fortune, sort of had a good time on the Hollywood scene, and then sort of has what, what appears to be a personal crisis of some kind. He seems to have, I guess, what we might call today a midlife crisis and decides that his life has been totally useless and sort of moves out of Hollywood, goes up to the hills, and sort of doesn't know what he's going to do. And then sort of midway in the 1920s, claims he has this strange prophetic vision that sort of turns him towards very trendy 1920s spiritualism, which we have to remember was a very popular view in this period. So Pelly goes from being this sort of Hollywood screenwriter and, and producer to uh, opening up a spiritualist newspaper in Asheville, North Carolina. He actually opens up a um, college there to spread his sort of strange spiritualist views. And as part of this, he tells his supporters that he has received a vision from Jesus, Jesus Christ, effectively, telling him that he needs to found a new organization to put America back, back on the path to true Christianity. And so he says that the sign for when he's supposed to create this group is when somebody who's been a painter as their profession becomes the leader of Germany. So this, of course, Kelly then claims has happened with Hitler. Of course, this is all a retrospective prophecy, right? He tells people that this is what's happened after it's taken place. So obviously sort of a self-fulfilling narrative. Um, But then he creates the Silver Legion. And the Silver Legion is based upon this bizarre set of economic and spiritual and racist beliefs. So Kelly tells his supporters that Capitalism is doomed. What they need to do is create a system of economics that relies on 
sort of every, everyone being a stakeholder or a shareholder in the state rather than producing for profit motivations. Uh, he tells them that in his future state, uh, Jews will be totally excluded because he sees them as associated irrevocably with communism and with uh, racial degeneracy. And he tells them that the only way to bring this out is through violent confrontation. And so Silver Legion supporters begin arming themselves in preparation for what appears to be some sort of racial war. And so the Silver Legion very quickly becomes one of the most dangerous groups in the United States. Its membership is nowhere as large as the Silver or Sorry, the, um, the German-American boon, but it certainly is a much more potent force, potentially. Um, yeah, you said that um, in the book that uh, the Silver Legion, they, they sort of train with weapons um, and arm themselves, and they have a very unusual uniform, very distinct uniform. Um, now, does he ever attempt to obtain political power through any uh, legitimate means? So Pelley does try to run for president, actually, in 1936. He gets on the ballot in, I think, only one state, as I recall, which is Washington State, and gets only a few thousand votes. But he does try to go through the ballot box. But when that appears to be totally outlandish, unrealistic, he then sort of retreats back into this idea that he's going to actually overthrow the state. And one thing about the Silver Legion I think is interesting, I thought about this a lot in the writing of this book, is how serious was this guy really? I mean, a lot of this sounds like a Hollywood movie. I don't think that's necessarily out, out of bounds because Wilbur Pelly is a Hollywood figure. And so the uniform you referred to is a sort of silver shirt with a red L, um, you know, right on the heart. And their flag is sort of this white gray banner with a big silver L or a big red L in it, I should say. Um, and this is a very, you know, stage managed thing. So I think part of Pelly's appeal in some ways and part of Pelly's game that he's playing is just getting his name out there. I don't think he necessarily thinks he's going to be successful at becoming president or dictator or whatever. Um, but I think he believes that he's gaining something by, by getting his name out there on an increasing public stage. Um, and he runs into some legal trouble at the sort of end of, of his prominence, correct? He, he doesn't uh, – taxes? Yes. Well, he's actually always been in legal trouble. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned a moment ago that he had founded a publishing house for his spiritualist beliefs. When he faced the Silver Legion, he actually skims money from that to start paying for the uh, fancy uniforms and things like that. So this is actually fraud because he had raised this money from his shareholders in the company. So, yes, he's in deep, deep legal trouble from about 1934 onward. Um, he's actually convicted in North Carolina and, and put on parole and then sort of skips out on the parole throughout the decade. So for much of the time when he's the leader of the Silver Legion, he's actually on the run for the law. Um, he does have a, a sort of a... A, a moment of reckoning where he he te he volunteers to testify at the at the dais committee, um, in sort of trying to make this strange deal with them. That um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the dais committee, for those who might not be familiar, is, is the House on American Activities Committee. It's, it's sort of the precursor to what will formally be known as HUAC later on. And Martin Dyes, Congressman Martin Dyes of Texas, is very interested in the Silver Legion because of this clearly subversive type of ideology that they're preaching. And so he subpoenas um, Pelley to appear before him, as he had actually Fritz Kuhn and other, other sort of figures in this milieu as well. And Pelley, much like he had treated his parole in North Carolina, simply doesn't respond. He goes on the run. So for a while, Pelley is, is on the run from the FBI, from Congress, and from authorities in North Carolina somewhat simultaneously but then does show up very dramatically in Washington, D.C., unannounced, shows up at the Dice Committee hearing and says he wants to talk. And this is so unexpected that Martin Dice himself is actually out sick with a cold this day. So he doesn't actually get to question Kelly. Um, it's sort of unclear whether 
how he somehow knows this. It seems unlikely, but it is a very sort of awkward coincidence, at least. Um, and then Pelly tells the other members that effectively he will shut down the entire Silver Legion. He will turn over everything that he knows and shut down its operation if they promise to take the threat of Jewish communism seriously. This is obviously a very loaded offer, um, but it leads Pelly, it gives Pelly an out. So a year or so later, after he's appeared, he actually manages to escape federal custody after showing up in Congress, which is just almost unbelievable to think about, but certainly shows, I think, again, this guy's sort of Hollywood flair that he's carrying around with him. Um, about a year later, he announces to his followers that, that the Diet Committee has secretly told him that they accept his offer and therefore he can shut down the Legion. So it becomes a sort of face-saving exercise for Pelley. Um Now, I, I find it interesting that the comparison between the two, Fritz and, and uh, Fritz Kuhn and Pelly. Um, Kuhn struck me as much more of as a, as a true believer, right? A true believer with ideology. Of course, he was trying to get his with scamming the money off the top. Um, do you think that that's the case with Kuhn as, as, as sort of a true believer in Pelly, maybe more just kind of out to make a buck, kind of more of a scam artist type? Yeah, I think that might be a fair comparison. I mean, it's hard to know what's going on with Pelly, as I mentioned. I think there's certainly an element of this is he's having fun with this, certainly. I think he, he seems to be having a good time and certainly likes the attention, I think, when he is out on the run. One of the things when he's actually evading the FBI and authorities in North Carolina, is that he sends notes to federal investigators posted from addresses where he's been a few days prior. So he's, he's goading them on. I mean, if he, he wants the press attention. He's enjoying this sort of narrative. I think that's certainly true of Kuhn. I never got the impression that Kuhn was anything other than a fairly unrepentant Nazi. And it certainly would make sense to me that he had perhaps been a member of the early Nazi party in Munich and uh, fled to the U.S. after that. But his goal does certainly seem to be to become the leader of a some sort of far-right coalition. And that's the thing that I think we're kind of um, skipping over perhaps in this discussion is that none of these groups could take over on their own, right? None of them were nearly strong enough to pressure the U.S. government. They were all seen as fairly fringe. But the real fear here was that they were going to link up with one another and create this sort of broad far-right front in the United States. Um, and interestingly, I quote Kuhn testifying before the Dyes Committee, um, and they ask me, ask me what he thinks about Pelly. And Kuhn says, oh, I'd never get involved with Pelly because he'll take over my entire organization. The man's an egomaniac. So these guys do not have a terribly high opinion of one another. Right, and so that sort of makes it difficult for them to coordinate um, the, the, the rivalries. Um, it's a good place to transition to because um, you, the, you have your third chapter is about the religious right in America um, and their sort of rise to prominence through technology like the radio. Um, and so they're reaching millions uh, of people. Um, so if you could talk just about some of the prominent members of that movement, and then we'll, we'll go on. Yeah, I think, I think one interesting thing is I, I do use the term religious right as the title of the chapter. And I've been questioned on, on whether that's an appropriate term, really, because that's a term that comes into prominence in the United States really in 1970s, 1980s, when we think about evangelical movement. The reason I do use it in the book, and I do think it's appropriate, is because this is how these individuals conceived of themselves. They certainly conceive of themselves as being heavily anti-communist, um, but I think what's interesting is that their their policies they're advocating, their ideology, is actually kind of a mix of the, of the far left and the far right. So the most prominent example of that would be Father Charles Coghlan, who's a nationally known radio figure, probably the most maybe the most famous person I talk about in that chapter. Um, and he commands what's possibly the largest radio audience in history. 
something like 28 million listeners in a country that's half the size of what it is today. And this is much larger than any talk show host that any of us could think of because it's larger than any talk show host who's ever had a show other than him. Um, and so Coughlin starts out as an ally of Roosevelt, actually. He strongly supports Roosevelt in the 1932 election and then thinks that he's going to become a prominent member of the administration. And that just truly doesn't happen because Roosevelt has no time for this guy after he's won the election. So by the mid-1930s, Coughlin has turned heavily against Roosevelt and started embracing very interventionist economic policies. So he bases a lot of his um, sermons on the radio in that period on the idea that the government should step in and, and spend huge amounts of money to revitalize the economy, even further than Roosevelt is already going with the New Deal. And that seems fairly innocuous, except that he ripped that actually out of the fascist playbook in Europe. That's actually exactly what Hitler and Mussolini have both done, is spend huge amounts of money to create employment. So Coughlin starts advocating this, and that leads him into sort of more natural affinities with the far right generally. Um, and then he, in 1940, to make a long story short, founds a group called the Christian Front that is pretty clearly a fascist-oriented organization, and its members actually begin roughing up Jews on the streets of American cities. So it's a very dangerous moment. Yeah, and he, um, can you talk about his relationship with the wider Catholic Church? Um, I know that if, at first he has a bishop that is uh, not necessarily friendly to him, but sort of allows him to to go on these sort of anti-Semitic um, say anti-Semitic things on the radio and so forth, and then eventually that changes. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as a Catholic priest, Coughlin is, is very heavily regulated, obviously, in a way that, that no Protestant minister would be, because there is no church hierarchy for Protestants, uh, in, in most denominations at least. So yes, he does have a bishop who's very friendly, and I think part of the reason for that is that his, his bishop early on is very interested in using radio to spread the message of the church. One thing we have to remember is that Coughlin actually gets started because he's trying to combat Ku Klux Klan prejudice against Catholics in the in Detroit. So it's a very admirable thing to, that he starts out doing. And I think the church at that point doesn't quite understand, as, as an institution, that this medium can be used for both good or, or bad in that sense. And so Coughlin is initially seen as an asset because he's one of the few priests, if not the only priest, who's using radio effectively and sort of the early 1920s. But by the 1930s, this, of course, changed. And when uh, Coughlin's bishop dies midway through the decade, the new bishop that comes in effectively says, you're not doing this anymore. And they start demanding to see his scripts before he presents them on radio. So it becomes a huge conflict. And eventually the church simply shuts him down. He won't comply with the censorship. And so they say, you're not doing it anymore. And he, he complies to his credit. Um, and, and how, and through his network, he was able to raise quite a bit of money. Um, he, I can't remember the actual figures you used, but he had, he had lots of dues-paying members to his, his organization. He was able to build a, a sort of massive church um, in Detroit. Um, and how um, did was the, was the finances, was that on the up and up? Yeah, so, so Coughlin is quite clever, right? He creates a mass organization where the dues are something like a dollar a month or something like that. So this is something that all virtually all of his listeners that are not terribly poor can afford. Um, and so he does start raking in huge amounts of cash, millions of dollars. Um, a lot of this ends up in Coughlin's pocket, actually. So we know that he becomes wealthy during this period. We still don't fully know how much he made. But at one point, the U.S. government finds a bank account that has the equivalent of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in it. He's actually stashed offshore. Um, so yes, Coughlin becomes quite wealthy. He does build this massive church in Royal Oak, Michigan that still actually stands to the present day. It's called the, the Shrine of the Little Flower. 
Um, and yeah, it, it does appear that it's on the up and up. I mean, there's certainly never an allegation that Coughlin is doing anything outright illegal. The government certainly would like to find something he's done that's illegal. But the other question would be how much was Coughlin able to protect himself because he was part of the Catholic Church? Certainly any, any money you gave to this would be seen as a very legitimate sort of donation in that sense. And so I think that protects him in a way that, that something like a Pelly or a Coon uh, could certainly not expect. In, in the other half of the chapter on the on the religious right, you you talk about um, other others attempts to run for Congress, run for Senate. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about the rate the Senate race going on in Kansas at the same time. Um, yeah, well, this is I think one of the more fascinating stories in the book because it's certainly something that I had never heard about before I started researching this. But this revolves around an evangelical minister who I argue is kind of an emulator of. His name is Gerald B. Winrod, and he at one time was a regionally known figure. He actually has a, a national presence on the radio. He buys time on sort of Coughlin's model all over the country, starts raising money off of that. And in 1938, sort of decides he needs to make the transition into politics. And so he runs for the GOP Senate nomination in Kansas, which is his home state, and appears poised to win the seat. I mean, one, one great irony I point out in the book is that the Democrat who is going to lose this election does lose it to the GOP nominee. It just won't be Winrod. It's actually the last Democrat that's ever represented Kansas in the U.S. Senate up to the present day. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty, pretty big sea change that's happening in 1938 in that sense. Uh, Winrod is poised to win this race, and then the national press gets a hold of this. And Winrod had been very much on the record supporting the Third Reich. He had traveled there. There were rumors that he was actually being partially funded, though we don't know if those are fully true. Um, and the national GOP steps in and, and encourages a mainstream Republican to run against him. And that person does actually win the race. Right. And um, one of the things I did want to ask you about, um, now that we've gotten through a couple of different examples, um, is how much or how little did the Nazi regime um, help these guys, Kuhn, Pelley, um members of the religious right, because um, you you do a very good job of explaining that there was tension in in the not you know the Nazi foreign ministry that you know sometimes you know less help is better more help is better or we should stay away from this guy completely or we should you know do more to help this guy um, it, it seems to be something that they were really thinking about in the foreign ministry and it, it was very case by case. Absolutely, yeah. There's there's actually interesting discussion that takes place in some of the some of the archival materials I found where. Um, the foreign ministry does debate who they should help, and, and the person that they're most interested in is, is Father Coghlan. So should you be giving Coghlan support or not? And they're deciding not to. They argue within the ministry that it, he will be more effective if he's left alone, because if you give him assistance, and he seems to be doing fine anyway, right, so there's no real need to, but even if you give him assistance, that could be uncovered, and that could actually undermine what they think is the positive part of his mission from their perspective. So... Um, yes, there is this great debate. Um, there is one one individual they do give huge amounts of money to, and that's someone we haven't talked about yet, uh, George Sylvester Gierak, who was the Nazis' most prominent agent on Capitol Hill, um, certainly in, tried to influence isolationist congressmen, and we think did so successfully. But he received unlimited funds from the German embassy and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars that were allocated for that purpose. So it is quite interesting that, that the Germans do debate this. And I think in some ways they make actually the right call. They understand that paying propagandists or people who are seen as propagandists is more dangerous than paying agents that are feeding you intelligence. So 
they do deliberately keep a distance from trying to directly help um, people like Coughlin or Winrod because they think they'll simply be more effective if they're left on their own. Um, was there a sense of the German foreign ministry that these these groups, the Bund and, and the Silver Legion and, and some others that we'll talk about, were just simply not worth their time? Um, they weren't large enough. They weren't going to be disruptive enough. Um, you know, there was no chance that the Legion was going to overtake the U.S. government, and so there was there's really no point. Yeah, there's certainly an element of that. I think with, with the German-American boon particularly, they're actually afraid that Kuhn is kind of an egomaniac. So <laughs> there are interesting internal memos where the foreign, foreign ministry officials say to one another that this guy can't be controlled because he's in the United States and they're in Berlin. Um, he's shown a penchant for wanting to be in the headlines. And if you really want to be an effective German agent, you don't want to be in the headlines necessarily. You don't want the U.S. government knowing what you're doing. Um, and so they actually do end up cutting off Kuhn when he's in trouble and ordering him to just stop doing anything because they do not see him as being helpful by the time the war actually starts. Um, I think what's, what's important to realize is the Germans have kind of mixed motives here. I mean, they, they certainly, by 1937-38, do not believe that they're going to be able to overthrow the U.S. government. There's no indication they think that any of these groups can actually win. What they do think they can accomplish, though, is two things. Possibly they can defeat Roosevelt in 1940, and they certainly do try to do that. Um, but also they think that they can keep the U.S. out of the war once it begins. And this becomes increasingly, as the 1930s go on, their primary motive. So it's not that you expect that Fritz Kuhn is going to become president or dictator of the United States or something like that. What you really want to be supporting, if you're the Germans, are these isolationist congressmen, People who are sowing confusion, effectively, people like Father Coughlin, who go on to the, this national radio audience we were talking about and talk about how the war is not America's business. Those are really the people that you want to be backing. And so as the 1930s go on, they, they pivot to supporting those individuals. Yeah, I think, I think it's a good point because you just mentioned um, the amount of money going to the individual trying to influence isolationist congressmen. Um, and so, yeah, if you could talk a little bit more about about his activities um, and you know what kind, what who, what congressman he went after, um, and how that sort of worked, um, how he put together that network in Congress. Yeah, I think I think this is one of the most fascinating things that comes across in the book. And it was something that even as someone with a PhD in history had never really heard about, and I doubt many people have. Um, hopefully, until now. Um, but George Sylvester Virek was a propagandist in the First World War. He was a German immigrant to this country, naturalized American citizen. Um, and, and like many German Americans prior to American involvement, had campaigned against US, the U.S. getting into the war, arguing that this was simply not a fight that America should have. Um, as part of this, though, he did become a paid agent of, of the Kaiser's foreign ministry, um, and that led him to get into some trouble with the U.S. government sort of late in the war. Um, in the 1930s, though, he becomes a very important asset for the Nazi government. So he believes that Hitler is offering the greatest promise for German prosperity, and that Nazism is, is really not a threat to the United States. So he goes on the foreign ministry's payroll as a paid propaganda agent. But I think kind of learning from his mistakes as a propagandist during World War One, he doesn't necessarily target a mass audience. And he doesn't necessarily target the German-American community. He targets Capitol Hill. And so Virek uh, actually gets himself appointed sort of informally as a speechwriter for a senator named Ernest Lindeen, who is the only farmer labor senator in the U.S. Congress at that point. Um, he is a senator from Minnesota, and he's kind of an, an outcast, frankly, on Capitol Hill. He had been a one-term congressman during World War I. 
had been opposed to the war, so kind of a natural ally for Virac, um, and then be, had been a, a recently elected senator. So he doesn't have a lot of experience on Capitol Hill. And he also appears to have, um, let's say, some personal issues. So his financial situation is not good. There are allegations that his staff are being forced to kick back parts of their salary to the senator himself, which sounds really bizarre. But this guy's kind of an outlier. So Virac approaches him, I think, quite deliberately and makes him an offer, which is that he will write isolation of speeches for him that he can deliver on the floor of Congress and print in, in first newspapers, so making some money at the same time. And all that Virac wants in exchange for that is access. And so this Lundin accepts this deal and then introduces Virac to his isolationist colleagues. And so for a period of about three years, um, this paid German agent, again, on the German payroll, is actually dictating speeches directly into the congressional record. And then comes up with another genius part of this plot. He actually figures out that using congressional franking privilege, he can mail this out to millions of Americans for free. And so for about a 12-month period, there were millions of isolationist speeches being sent out under congressional frank, so having the return address of a congressman, um, that are sent out to Americans basically unwittingly, kind of an early equivalent of, of spam email, I suppose. Um, and so, so this goes on right under the noses of the FBI, goes on right on Capitol Hill, and it's quite successful for a period of time. Um, how did uh, how did this end? How did how did Virek end? So Virek ends up getting caught by the British, as it turns out. Uh, he ends up uh, mailing a series of intelligence reports to Berlin, which get intercepted by the British in um, in the Pacific, or sorry, in the Atlantic. So the British have been um, secretly routing mail bags leaving the East Coast of the U.S. through censorship facilities. So looking at the contents of the mail under the guise, I guess, or legitimate guise in some ways, of military secrecy. So they're actually reading people's mail. And through this, they actually detect Burek's, um sort of intelligence reports back to Berlin, being sent to known German intelligence addresses in neutral countries. Um, and they drop the story onto the laps of the FBI. So it appears, from my research at least, that the FBI had almost no idea what was going on until the British actually plant stories in the newspaper. So it's kind of a bizarre intelligence oversight on the FBI's part. Um, but once these tips start getting dropped into the relevant Washington newspapers by British agents, um, the FBI does crack down hard. So ends up getting thrown into prison, um, partially because he's violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which has some contemporary implications today. Um, and his associates, he's actually been working with some congressional staffers. They also end up going to prison. Um, did the some of the congressional staffers, were they aware of what he, he was doing, or were they just bad luck? <laughs> no, absolutely they were aware. So the key oh. player was a man named George Hill, who was a staffer in Hamilton, Representative Hamilton Fish III's office, a congressman from New York, known isolationist. Um, and George Hill had certainly knowingly cooperated with Virek and actually taking kickbacks from him as part of his effort. So certainly was knowing he ends up going to jail for a period of time for perjury. Okay. Um, would you assess this operation as, as being effective? Um, was he effective in what he was trying to do? Did he, um, did he, uh, was there any, um, well, I'll let you that and I'll ask you something else. I think, I think it's undoubtedly effective in the sense that he does get millions of pieces of isolationist mail sent out for free or at very low cost to him. So it's undoubtedly effective in that way. Um, you know, how effective was he in affecting American public opinion? It's hard to know. I mean, I think the people that he was targeting were probably isolationist-leaning Americans anyway. So he probably didn't push anyone in a new direction. But 
you know, I think what's, what's interesting about this period, one of my, my main takeaways in writing this book, was just how tenuous American politics was at this point. I and mean, there was certainly no political will for the U.S. to enter the war on a large scale. And so anything that, that the Germans were doing to try to, to move the needle a little bit in the isolationist direction, I think undoubtedly had, had an impact. It's very difficult to know how, how much stuff. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you make because for us, in 2018, of, of course, we enter the war. Of course, Lend-Lease continues, you know, until we enter the war. Um, you know, then we go and we win the war. Um, I, I think it's important for people to remember that there was a, a, a large population, probably, you know, a very large population of the Americans wanted nothing to do with another European conflict. Um, so when you say, you know, the Germans trying to push that needle just a little bit, um, you know, it's not a certainty in 1938 or 1939 that Roosevelt is reelected. Um, you know, and we could have, if he'd lost, we could have gone in a complete another direction. Um, so I think that is one of the things about your book that, uh, sort of reminded me of that, you know, not, nothing is, ine- is, you know, inevitable at the time. Um, and so I think that's good. Um, I want to turn to universities now. Um, Nazis have always been, in, were always interested in, in the young. Um, so I'll just talk a little bit about, um, the efforts in American universities to influence university students, and in, um, and it is a small group, as you as you state state in the book. You know, it's only five percent or so of Americans at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key thing to remember here is that fascism, as you say, is really all about the young. And this mm-hmm. is something that both Hitler and Mussolini say over and over again. And, and even people like Heinrich Himmler, who probably believes it even more um, directly than than a Hitler does, but. These people talk about how this is an ideology for the young. It's about vibrancy. It's about, you know, observing the military and the necessity of, and desirability in some ways of violence. And so the young are very much targeted. I mean, just think of the Hitler youth camps in Germany as a great example of that. But the Germans see American young people as fertile terrain for their propaganda. And this is another thing that really sort of stood out to me in, in doing the research for this book. And, um, part of the reason for that is that as you just said, it was only about 5% of Americans, largely American men, there are very few women that go to college, and if they do, it's largely all women's colleges. Um, and it's also almost all white men, um, unless it's, we're talking about historically black colleges in this period. And so it's a very good bet, if you're the Germans, that you are impacting the next generation of American elites. And it's certainly true. Um, we know that America first uh, starts out at Yale University. Um, I quote a great deal of evidence involving Columbia because Columbia appears to be the most egregious example where this was allowed to go on, um, basically right under the administration's noses. But the Germans put together a tremendous propaganda campaign to influence American college students, largely revolving around study abroad programs. And this is something that we don't think about so much today, but up until 1939, really, even even you know, up until September 1st, 1939, it was very possible to travel to the Third Reich openly. And certainly it was, it was desirable for the Germans to have Americans go on vacation there. Some of Virek's, uh political activity on Capitol Hill related to trying to convince people to take their holidays in the Third Reich. This is sort of also unknown um, or, or mostly forgotten part of history. But there were thousands of Americans we think that studied in the Third Reich, and the Nazis put together extensive propaganda campaigns to try to influence them. And so you can imagine being this sort of you know 20-year-old American male student who goes to the Third Reich and suddenly has all of these opulent tours set up, the beautiful country, there are commentaries written from people who are there about how beautiful the women are, um, how there's no graffiti, there's no crime, and it's all very stage-managed stuff. It's all fundamentally propaganda. 
but I cite some, some intelligence reports from the Berlin embassy, the U.S. embassy in Berlin, saying that these students are buying this stuff whole hog. That they're they're being feted and wined and dined by the German government, and they're and they're unskeptically sort of accepting this. And that's very frightening when you think about it, because it, it indicates that to some extent the Germans were not wrong in their gamble um, in sort of pursuing these young people. Now, what's interesting about that is we don't really know what the long-term impact of that was. Of course, those people come back to the U.S. largely, I mean, virtually all of them, and lead what appear to be fairly normal lives. Um, I was only able to find a handful of accounts that were published after the war's end from people who had been students there really talking about their experiences. So... That was another interesting conclusion that I drew was, you know, throughout much of the 20th century, people who had studied in the Third Reich were, were living in this country quite normally and apparently were not too impacted by that. Um, are there any, uh, you mentioned Columbia, but are there any universities in particular that, that the German, uh, or, and, and in Germany too, any German universities in particular that um, fostered these exchange programs? Were there any universities that were like, no, no, we're not going to let students go there, um, sort of on the opposite end? Yeah, I couldn't find any that outright forbade it. Um, one thing we have to remember is that German was a very useful language in this mm. period. It was actually required in a lot of the sciences and in medicine. So obviously traveling to Germany was a good way to perfect one's language skills mm. or acquire those skills to begin with. So, yeah, very popular. Um, the, the sort of worst offenders, I suppose, in terms of allowing stuff to go on were Columbia. Um, Stanford University also showed a great deal of reluctance in shutting this stuff down. One of the stranger things I found was that they actually still had students studying in Germany when the war breaks out. So September of 1939, I mean, that's very, very late. This is after the Kristallnacht. This is after it's very clear that there's going to be a war of some kind. And so, you know, I'm not sure what that indicates, perhaps just a general disregard for the safety of these students or perhaps some sort of hope that um, these study abroad programs might prevent a war. And that's another interesting aspect is that there's quite a lot written from students who do study in the Reich in this period that they think that what they're doing there is, is preserving world peace. They're actually helping build understanding between these countries. So whether these universities are sort of naive about what's going on or whether they simply don't have enough information or whether it's that they have some sort of hope that what they're doing is going to help preserve world peace, uh, sort of unclear to me. But um, yeah, not a lot of universities shut it down entirely mm. until very, very late. Mm. And you didn't uncover sort of any students um, or anything, uh, you know, talking about how they were, you know, sort of became Nazis after they went there. I didn't encounter any evidence that people were converted to it. I did encounter evidence that some of the students who went there um, were already sympathetic. Mm. And so I cite a couple of examples of Columbia PhD students who sort of run what they sort of na naively, I guess, think is a some sort of Nazi cell. Of course, they don't actually do any anything terribly bad as part of this, but certainly their private letters um, sort of indicate that they have some sympathies in the Third Reich. And one of those individuals does go to um, Europe and travels fairly extensively there, and then just comes back to America and serves in, in the Navy during World War II. So sort of unclear what the long-term impact of this hmm. was. Yeah, that's I, I found that fascinating that, you know, they were... I, I, I thought maybe it was mostly useful, youthful idealism or something. I, I couldn't quite wrap my mind around that either, what the, what the long-term impacts of it could be. Um, so let's turn to the America First Committee, um, which you state in the book is sort of an amalgamation of, of a lot of different groups. Um, as you said in the beginning, it's the largest of the group. Um, so if you could explain what the group is how it was formed, um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, another example of youthful idealism, I think, uh, mm -hmm. right there, too. Um, America First is actually founded by some students at Yale Law School, 
um, when after the war has begun, and they are students who are largely associated with the Republican Party, um, opponents of Roosevelt, opponents of the New Deal, and also opponents of intervention in the war. And so they create America First as a anti-interventionist group, but it also has very strong anti-Roosevelt undertones. And they begin putting together sort of seminars, inviting, these are obviously well-connected, wealthy young men in this period at Yale Law School. Um, and so they start inviting people um, from Capitol Hill to visit them. The group begins growing. And then really it takes off when Charles Lindbergh, who's just come back from Europe, um, gives a talk at Yale Law School, and membership begins to explode. So by late 1940, early 1941, this is a nationwide organization. It's actually headquartered in Chicago, which is where the founder of it was from. It's headquartered actually in the Quaker Oats, <laughs> so corporate headquarters. There's a clear sort of tie in there. Um, but largely it's an organization, again, geared at trying to keep America out of the war. But they, just like you're talking with the Nazis, focus heavily on college campuses. So there are chapters that spring up all across the country um, and you can sort of understand why. I mean, certainly young people have the most to lose in a war. They're the ones who are actually going to go and fight it. So America First, um, its membership caps out around 800,000, which is really a huge organization. It's one of the largest mass mobilization groups in American history. I mean, you can sort of imagine, you know, in a country that's twice as large, any organization that had three or four million members would be seen as a quite powerful pressure group in Washington, D.C., so this thing includes a lot of respectable names, it includes a number of U.S. senators, a number of U.S. representatives, some of whom had been implicated in the VIREC plot we were talking about a moment mm-hmm. ago, um, which had sort of only sort of been revealed at that point. But yeah, it becomes this huge organization and has just an amazingly outsized influence on politics after the 1940 election. Well, I guess that's that's not surprising given the the sort of prominent people. Um, that inhabit the organization. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what they were able to accomplish and what their overall sort of, I mean, it's sort of obvious what their platform is, but maybe be, uh, just give a little specifics as to what they were, their, their stated goals were. Yeah, ostensibly they're, they're against involvement in the war. So this becomes their main um, sort of line that they're taking is that they're just opposed to the U.S. getting involved in, in the Second World War. There's no reason for the U.S. to get involved, they say. And also they make the argument that the British are doomed. There's no reason to support the British Empire because um, Britain just simply can't win the war. And this is where you get figures like Joe Kennedy, former U.S. ambassador to Britain, who comes back in late 1940 and basically starts telling groups um, that, that Britain has lost. You can imagine how influential this would be for someone who's still at that point even a sitting U.S. ambassador to say the country he's an ambassador to is going to lose the war. Um, so incredibly impactful stuff. But there's also this other element of America First that's that's a little wider, as I mentioned. And that is that the America Firsters believe the U.S. just needs to be inward-looking. It, explicitly on foreign policy, Lindbergh, uh, when he's making stump speeches, says that U.S. should focus on building an impenetrable fortress of, of naval bases and air bases. He's a big believer in air power. Um, and then economically, it needs to be looking to Latin America. It needs to be looking to the Western Hemisphere and, and just forget about Asia, forget about Europe, effectively. And so there's this wider sort of economic critique that's taking place. And I think it, it's kind of in some ways unfortunate that America first ends when it does. It ends right after Pearl Harbor because that critique has sort of been lost. But it, it's interest, it would have been interesting to imagine how that might have been constituted in a wider way. They really don't have the time to develop that view any further. We do see a little bit of this stuff come back in the early 1950s with the Robert Taft campaign in 1952, but Taft loses the nomination to Dwight Eisenhower, who was an avowed internationalist, then Supreme Allied Commander, of course. 
Um, and so that critique sort of gets lost. And I think, you know, to, to talk, do a contemporary tie-in, we're hearing this term again being used, and I think it's very interesting to think about how the contemporary use sort of ties back to that historical um, legacy. Um, now, you you referenced the Lindbergh speech in, in Iowa at the beginning of the book, um, sort of where, you know, he goes off the rails a little bit, off script a little bit, um, and, and uses a lot of anti-Semitic um, language. Um, and now, how much of that anti-Semitism was sort of part of Ameri the, the America First Committee? Um, was it something that was really important to them? I mean, because you, you mentioned that they, they, they write a, a statement sort of not condemning the speech, but sort of, you know, trying to massage it a little bit to make it more uh, publicly palatable. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. One of the more interesting things that I discovered was that there was this huge disconnect and huge split between America First leaders, uh, maybe with the exception of Lindbergh, and their rank-and-file membership. So after the September 11, 1941 speech, where Lindbergh blames the Jews explicitly for the first time for the outbreak of war in Europe, um, America First leadership kind of panics, understandably. Um, some of the more respectable elements then disconnect. They basically say, we can't be a part of this. This makes us look like the Nazis. This is crazy talk. We're out of here. And, and there are some resignations, especially in places like New York City. But within the rank and file, I mean, I've, I've gone through some of this, and other historians have as well. Something like 90% of the letters that come into America First headquarters are supportive of Lindbergh. And some of them, I, I quote one in the book that's disturbing. I think it's a couple from Minneapolis saying, you've just said what we've been saying for years, the Jews are the ones who are pushing this war. Keep up the good work, Colonel Lindbergh. So there's, there is this big disconnect. And, and I think one thing that's hard for us to imagine today is just how common anti-Semitism was in this period. Um, and certainly I cite polling in the book that sort of indicates this, but there's a substantial minority of Americans that have what we would consider to be really virulent anti-Semitic views, people who don't want Jews in the United States. That was still a fairly, fairly common thing in this period. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, uh, there's no way to know this one I'm going to ask for certain, but I, I was was curious as to how much of the support for Lindbergh has to do with um, maybe not so much his views, but his, his sort of stardom. Um, people are, you know, just enraptured by him. Um, but uh, I think you sort of answered it by saying that you looked at some polling about anti-Semitic views. Um, so how would you, would, would you assess the average, I mean, certainly the average person in any of these organizations is probably anti-Semitic, correct? That's probably one of their number, maybe not their number one reason for joining one of these organizations, but it's got to be up there. I think if you were not anti-Semitic, being in these organizations would be uncomfortable. I think that's a fair assessment. Okay. Yeah, I just um, – and another thing, now that we've been through a lot of these different groups, um, can you talk a little bit about women? Um, were they – how were they – you know, what kind of numbers did women participate in these groups? Um, yeah, it's a really great question. Yeah. So the German-American Bund actually has sort of a women's division. They also have a youth division, and so there are female members of that. Um, but women actually, I mean, the Silver Legion is, is much more anti-woman. I mean, it's technically open to women, but there are very few women that I could find at least to become members. That's largely, largely sort of middle-aged men. Um, but America First has this very important role for women. And that's primarily because they try to use women as anti-war speakers. They think that having mothers and wives on the, on the stump is a very effective way to, uh, sort of convince people that war is a bad idea. 
And there's actually some very emotional accounts that I, I've read as part of the research of gold star mothers, so women who have lost husbands, sons in presumably World War One at this point, um, going up on stage before a Charles Lindbergh, for instance, and talking in tears about how they've lost their loved ones and that they never want there to be another gold star mother. So this is a um, you know a really powerful thing, and and I think you could argue to some extent that this is manipulation. It's using women as a political tool in that sense. But I think also a lot of these women are, are probably very genuine in their views. I mean, certainly they've suffered this incredible emotion, emotional loss, um, and and they explicitly make the case of why should we sacrifice our husbands or sons for this war in a faraway land of which we know nothing. We don't need to. We don't need to do this effectively. So. Women become this really incredible tool, and, and they're actually quite a large number of female leaders in the America First Committee. Okay, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I think um, I, I wasn't entirely sure on that. Um, and so, would you say that the, you know, these these committees and um, these groups after Pearl Harbor, they were that was basically it for membership, right? They sort of probably went way down um, and lost a lot of their sort of their power to make their argument. Yeah, America first shuts down, I think it's two days after Pearl Harbor, uh, maybe even one day. And they encourage their members to go into war work. What's, what's interesting is that they put out a statement saying that we were still right, um, and that we got sucked into this war because our principles were ignored. So they're kind of defiant up until the bitter end. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other organizations, much more so than America first, also risk being banned as subversive. So after Pearl Harbor, even before Pearl Harbor actually, U.S. government's just tired of these organizations. And interestingly, Father Coughlin, um, he's still publishing his newspaper, which is called Social Justice in that period, and the U.S. government bans it from distribution through the mail as potentially subversive towards military morale. So once the war begins, the U.S. government's power increases dramatically when it comes to these organizations, and they actually do put a fairly large number of these leaders on trial for sedition. Um, none of them are actually convicted because the government's case is kind of um, spurious, actually. But the government does go after them quite heavily. Um, so as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, um, and there's a lot in this book, um, and what are like one or two major things you, you would hope that someone listening to this interview and will hopefully go out and get the book and read the book uh, will take away from the book when they're done? Yeah, I think, I think there's two main takeaways, and, and this is obviously something I've thought about quite a lot. I think one of them is that the role of America's political system is really important here. And one of the things that struck me in, in writing this book was the importance of political parties sort of policing themselves. And so, you know, the Gerald Winrod story we were talking about earlier, he only is defeated because the national GOP steps in and ensures his defeat. If they hadn't convinced a, a mainstream Republican to run against him, he very likely would have won that seat. And that's kind of a terrifying thought that you might have a pretty outright Nazi in the U.S. Senate in 1938-39. That's a critical period. So so that's, that's thing number one. And the same is true, I should mention, of Democrats as well. A lot of the isolationists in the upper Midwest and the West were Democrats. The Democratic Party after the war votes all of them out of office. So the role of political parties in policing themselves and um, sort of maintaining discipline, I guess you could say, is, is very important. The second thing that, that really surprised me, and I think this harkens back to our earlier discussion, was just how much hatred there was towards Franklin Roosevelt. You know, this is a figure that is widely renowned by historians now as one of the greatest presidents, again, the only president to ever win a third and then a fourth term, unthinkable today. 
But the amount of just hatred and virulence towards Roosevelt that I found in the archives was really astonishing. And I think one thing that's important for us to remember is that we tend to think of politics, our politics today, as being exceptionally confrontational and exceptionally personal in nature. And it's kind of always been the case. Certainly, I mean, this, this guy goes down as one of the better U.S. presidents. Certainly, I mean, you could certainly argue about his position, you know, in terms of those surveys and things. But um, there was a large number of Americans that really hated this guy. And and I think it, it's kind of important for us to remember within that context that politics is always about this kind of confrontation, and especially politics in, in sort of fraught times. Hmm. Well, uh, thank you for that. Um now, before we let you go, we've taken up a lot of your time, but um, I always like to ask, uh, what are you working on now? And what's the next project? Um, not to put you on the spot or anything, if you haven't come up with yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's more stories to tell from this period. I, I'd like to look a little more, I'm not sure what this project will fully entail, but something more involving this isolationist, interventionist debate. I think there are certainly more stories to tell here that go beyond sort of Hitler's intelligence network, which is really what this book is about. But I think digging down into into what this debate really meant, because I think the isolationist position is much more than just politics. I think it reflects an entire worldview um, of people, particularly in certain parts of the country, but but not only that as well, people in, from certain demographic groups and things of that sort. So I think I'd like to interrogate a little more as to what made people isolationists? What drove those views? Where did they really come from? What were the varieties of views? How were they nuanced? And, and certainly what happens to those after the war? For decades, isolationism really ceased to exist as an ideology. So what, what happened to those people? Well, when it becomes a book, uh, again, no pressure, um, I would love to have you back on the show to talk about it. Um, I first want to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show. Um, I really enjoyed this book. Um, I would encourage everybody listening to go out and get it and read it. Um, it's it's a it's a very quick read. Um, you know, very stories are great. Um, there's a lot in there for basically anybody who's interested in in this period of our history and European history. So with that, I want to again thank Dr. Hart, and I want to thank everybody for listening. And we will see you all next time.